0: But I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing a podcast. Hello again and welcome to Serial Killing a Podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous. Vile and disturbing behaviors. And of course, special thanks to some of my patrons John, my girl Judy, David, Brie, Brandy, Cassandra, Gaylin, Gabrielle, Emily, Emma, Nanette, Sophie, Sarah, Teresa, Florence, Robert, Katarina, Hammer, Janice, Freddie, Sam, and Catherine. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. So, today's podcast is going to be on the Bloody Benders. So we'll start with a bit of backstory, beginning with the end of the Civil War. Of course, we know this was a war between the Union or the North of the United States and the Confederacy of the South. and It began in April of 1861 when the Confederates attacked Fort Sumter in South Carolina. This war was long and bloody, but effectively ended in April 1865 when the South surrendered to the North. It is estimated that between 620,000 and 750,000 soldiers lost their lives and there is no real numbers for the amount of civilians that died as well. Now, After the war, a lot of the southern states were left in ruin. Many areas were actually completely devastated, especially the railroad system was hit very heavily. But this ushered in the reconstruction era, both for the war-torn regions, but also to begin ensuring civil rights for the newly freed slaves. This era lasted from 1865 to 1877 from the assassination of President Lincoln through Andrew Johnson and then Ulysses S. Grant's presidencies. After the first year of the Civil War, the Homestead Act of 1862 was enacted. This gave any adult citizen or intended citizen who had never, quote, bore arms against the U.S. government. could claim 160 acres of surveyed government land. The stipulation was that they were then required to improve the plot of land by building a dwelling and working the land for crops and overall agriculture. After five years, the person would then own the land and property free and clear, other than a small registration fee. Now, Republicans had actually added this to their platform the year before, but it did gain traction after. The idea was an ambitious one, as it was a way to try to help with poverty, but really only a few laborers and farmers could actually afford to buy the tools and materials needed to build a farm. Most of this land went to cattlemen, miners, lumbermen, and the railroads in the end, but quite a few homesteaders did actually make it. And we all know that, during this time of migration west and open territories, the U.S. began forcibly removing the indigenous people from their homelands and relocating them. And our story in particular, the Osage Indians were moved from their homelands in Kansas, south into Oklahoma, so that the Kansas Territory would be available to be settled by European settlers. So... It was at this time, at the end of the Civil War, the continuation of the Homestead Act and during a time of the country's reconstruction that a small group of spiritualist families moved to the Osage area in 1870. They would place their roots a few miles from where the now town of Cherryville, Kansas is located. One of these families were the Benders, John Sr., Elvira, Kate and John Jr. Now spiritualists believe that the spirits of the dead are able to and most certainly do communicate with the living that the spirit realm is where the spirit continues to evolve. So with the flatland, brutal winds and conditions of the area, two of the families moved away before the year was over. The other families kept to themselves, but not the Benders. And there is little to no information about their backstories, so no psychology to analyze or anything, I apologize. But we do have a very interesting story. So John Senior, who was also known as William and sometimes even John Flickinger, and Elvira were believed to have immigrated from Germany, though others said that they were from the Netherlands, as neither could speak English very easily. In fact, it was mentioned in several sources that Pa Bender, when he did speak, was so guttural that most could not really understand what English he did speak. Now Pa was around 60 years old when he and his roughly 25 year old son arrived in the homestead area. Now Pa, as I will call him for the rest of the story, was described by people who knew him or of him, quote. The old man was a repulsive, hideous brute, without a redeeming trait, dirty, profane, and ill-tempered." End quote. Elvira, or Ma, was about 55 years old. According to old newspaper sources, she was believed to have been born Almira Hill Mark and had lived in some mountains in upstate New York, having married her first husband, Simon Mark. She herself later claimed to have had 12 children with Simon. She had also previously been married to a man by the name of Stephen Griffith after Simon, but I couldn't find out whether or not she had had any children with him. Now, it was suspected that she had killed these two husbands and perhaps more husbands before being with John Sr. or Pa. Now, Elvira was described as, quote, Old Mrs. Bender was a dirty old Dutch crone. Her face was a fit picture of the midnight hag that wove the spell murderous ambition and the soul of Macbeth." In fact, the neighbors did make a point to comment on the fact that Ma was so standoffish and unfriendly that they nicknamed her She-Devil. Yikes. The neighbors stated that John Jr quote, had a habit of laughing aimlessly, which made some of them think he might have had some mental handicap. He was described as having auburn hair and a mustache and was considered at least moderately handsome. Now, Pa and John arrived ahead of the ladies in October of 1870 on their 160-acre property that faced the Osage Trail, later to be called the Santa Fe Trail. Together, they built a one-room lumber cabin, with a space under the house that was a stone cellar. John had also plotted a much smaller tract of land, directly north of Paws, but it is said that he never actually worked the land and he certainly never lived on it. Now, This cabin itself only had a canvas curtain, normally used to cover wagons, to divide the room into two spaces. The front of the cabin was put together to be a public inn and small general store, and the family living space was in the back. Now, since there were a great number of travelers headed out west or coming back and forth on the Osage Trail, which was the only open road at the time, well, the idea was that they could make money charging travelers to eat and stay there. So, once Pa and John finished construction, including a well and a barn, they sent for Ma and Kate to come to the homestead. They arrived in 1871. Kate was around 23 years old. Now, both she and John Jr. spoke fluent English, but both had at least slight accents. Now, the one member of the family that the local community seemed to actually get along well with was young Kate. Now, there is some kind of gray area as to whether or not John Jr. and Kate were actually siblings or common-law married. Local documents versus the local people are pretty evenly split, but regardless, everyone seemed to like Kate. She was described as an attractive, outgoing young lady, quote "well-formed and bold in appearance, end quote, and most likely had red hair." So once the family got settled and got the store set up, they sold things such as tobacco, crackers, sardines, candles, horse feed, gunpowder, liquor, and so on out of the front of the store of their home. And they also provided meals for travelers through the area. Ma and Kate even planted a two-acre vegetable garden and began preserving food, and they also had planted an apple orchard. With all of this, their property would have been a welcome sight for road-weary travelers. The Benders were a quiet family who did attend the local church, town hall meetings and also appeared to be upstanding citizens. Outside of their more average life and presentation to society, Kate was the self-proclaimed healer and psychic. She quickly made a name for herself, professing to be clairvoyant, meaning having the supernatural ability to perceive events in the future or beyond normal sensory contact. She began actually advertising in the local paper that she had the ability to, quote, heal all sorts of diseases, can cure blindness, fits, deafness, and all such diseases, also deaf and dumbness. End quote. The advert had the directions to the Bender's home. Kate also happened to lead lectures on the subject of being a medium and a spiritualist. During these lectures, she openly stated that murder might be a, quote, dictation for good. Quote. She believed that, quote, in what the world might deem villainy, her soul might read bravery, nobility, and humanity end quote. She even went as far as to preach that she advocated free love, that all social regulations for the promotion of purity and the prevention of carnality, which she called miserable requirements of self-constituted society. Now, remember, this is the late 1800s. One would think that this would have gotten her into some pretty hot water, but no. She actually became pretty popular and was all around well-regarded. Here is a quote from one of her lectures where she said, "...shall we confine ourselves to a single love and deny our natures their proper sway? Even though it be a brother's passion for his own sister, I say it should not be smothered." But again, as strange as her thoughts and beliefs were, People regarded her at least positively. If you like true crime, dark history, the haunted and paranormal, then we think you'll like Ghost Town. Ghost Town is hosted by me, Rebecca Lieb. And me, Jason Horton. We cover both notorious and obscure true crimes. The haunted, paranormal, and unexplained. And the dark history of everything from world events to pop culture. We have new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. If you like Ghost Town, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. And at ghosttownpod.com. Now, the Osage Trail was indeed a treacherous place. Again, it was really the only open and publicly used road that led out west. It was a road well-traveled, but one would have to realize that along the way, there was a high chance for running into trouble, such as bandits and horse thieves. Conflicts with Native Americans who did not appreciate the European settlers being there in the first place. If you were injured or got very sick, you would most likely die. There were always the inevitable accidents, unpredictable weather, and so on. So it really wasn't all that uncommon to hear news of someone or a small group of people that went missing. And it took a great deal more time to travel back then, so travelers would see the Bender property as a welcome sight. Most often, men would pass through looking to claim land and buy livestock, and they bought them with money. The Bender family would sell them needed goods, feed them a home-cooked meal, offer them a spot to sleep if they needed rest, and so on. What was beginning to become a bit suspicious was that people from the local, and I use that term loosely, local area began to mysteriously disappear. Now remember that Ma and Kate arrived on the homestead in early 1871. That May, the body of a man only known by the name of Jones was found in Drum Creek, just barely southwest of Cherryvale. It was clear that he had been murdered as his throat had been cut and his skull had been nearly crushed from blunt force trauma. The owner of that parcel of land was suspected at first, but then no arrest was made. Then in February 1872, two more bodies of men were found that had the same wounds as the man known as Jones. Later that year, a man named George Newton Longcore and his 18-month-old daughter Mary Ann departed from Independence, Kansas. After his wife had died, he packed himself and his little girl up, headed northeast with the plans of resettling in Iowa. Neither made it to their destination and were never seen again. Now, In the spring of 1873, a friend and former neighbor of Georgia's, Dr. William Henry York, decided to do a little investigating into his friend and his friend's daughter's disappearance. The good doctor began visiting homesteaders along the Osage Trail to ask them if they had seen his friend or his little girl. Dr. York got as far as Fort Scott, Kansas in March before turning around to come back to Independence. He never made it, though his horses had been found abandoned near Fort Scott. Now, Dr. York's disappearance compared to many others actually garnered serious suspicion. As it was, there were so many people vanishing off of the trail that people began to avoid using it at all. Now, the doctor was from a very prominent family and had two brothers, Ed, who lived in Fort Scott, and Alexander York, who was a Civil War veteran, a lawyer, and a very well respected member of the Kansas State Senate, who also lived in Independence. Both were well aware of their brothers traveling to see about the disappearance of his friend. So, when it became clear that he had not made it home and was himself missing, both brothers made a call to action and ordered a full, no-holds-barred search for the missing doctor. Alexander York, along with 50 other men, visited every homestead along the trail and questioned every single traveler they happened upon. In late March, Alexander arrived on the Bender's property, known as the Bender's Inn. He introduced himself to the family, stating the purpose of his visit was to inquire about his brother, Dr. York, and if they had seen him. The Bender said that, yes, they had actually seen him and that he had stayed with them, but had left in good health with no issues. They offered that. Perhaps he had crossed paths with some angry Native Americans. Alexander agreed that that was plausible and accepted their offer to stay for dinner. He left with no incident. Now during all of this, as others who lived in the general area of Southeast Kansas were going missing. It was said that a vigilante group tried, with really no success, to hold various people accountable, even going as far as to arrest people, but then having to release the men once it could be proven that they were innocent, so there was already some commotion in the area. In April, word got back to Alexander York that a woman had run screaming from the Bender's fleeing for her life as Elvira had allegedly threatened her with a knife. He gathered some of his men and they armed themselves to visit the Bender homestead again. When they arrived, Alexander questioned them again. Kate and John Jr. both feigned ignorance and Elvira acted as though she did not understand a word he was saying that he was speaking English, though she did understand it pretty decently actually. Because finally, after Alexander really began to press the issue, Elvira flew into a rage, exclaiming that the woman who had fled their property had been a witch who had cursed her coffee. She then ordered him and his men to get off her property. But this show of temper was all too revealing to Alexander. But Kate interceded and stated that if the men would come back after some time, she would use her psychic abilities to search for Dr. York and show the men his grave. Though Alexander was convinced of their guilt, he agreed to take his men and leave and return before long. So, around this exact same time, the neighboring communities also began suspecting that the disappearances were the result of someone in the Osage area. So, they held a public town hall meeting in the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse where everyone agreed to get search warrants for every single property between Hill Creek and Drum Creek, which did include the Bender Homestead. In attendance of this meeting, why? Alexander York and Pa Bender and John Jr. Bender. And so the crowd dispersed with a plan. As the next few days passed, a local named Billy Toll happened to be moving some cattle past the Bender's homestead. He thought that the home or the inn looked abandoned. Upon closer inspection, he also noticed that the homestead's cattle were dangerously low on water and had no feed. It seemed as though it had been abandoned. Billy went to the township trustee and reported his findings, but the weather had been pretty bad and continued to be so for a few days, so no one made it over to the property to properly investigate it until the weather had calmed down. So when it was finally time, the township trustee called for volunteers to search the homestead and actually several hundred people came forward to be part of the search party, including Alexander York. Once the people arrived at the Bender homestead, they entered the main building only to find that all of the clothing, food, personal possessions, all gone. It was obvious that the Bender family had fled. And as people were walking around, taking in the situation, it was noticed pretty quickly that a rather foul odor was clinging to the air. Some began to search for the source of the smell and realized that it was coming from underneath a bed. The bed was moved and a trap door was revealed that had been nailed shut. This was, of course, the door to the stone cellar below. They used what tools they had to pry open the trap door, and once opened, the stench became overwhelming. Underneath the door was an empty room, roughly six feet deep and seven foot by three foot long and wide in size, save the unimaginable amount of clotted blood and matter that had literally soaked through the stone into the soil beneath. Now, I cannot tell you how these people did this, save using horses or mules to help them, but all sources say that the droves of people that were there all pitched into, quite literally move the entire house out of the way so that they could begin excavating the ground beneath the cellar. Unfortunately, the digging produced no evidence. But then, attentions were diverted to a rather large vegetable garden that looked freshly tilled, though it always looked freshly tilled, and they decided to dig there. And side note, I have a pretty sizable vegetable garden myself, and even with my gas-powered but smaller tiller that I have, it would be an intense chore to till around the plants on a frequent basis, so this would of course garner some suspicion after they had found The blood. So the digging went on into the night, and then finally, some volunteers stumbled onto the body of Dr. York. His wounds matched those of the three men from before. Blunt force trauma to the head was very obvious. Needless to say, it didn't take long for them to find more remains with identical injuries. And while sources differ slightly, the consensus is that somewhere around 12 people's remains had been found on the property, including some that had been buried in the apple orchard and even one left in the well. The number of victims is thought to be around 21 total. A Kansas newspaper reported that the crowd of people and volunteers were so upset at what they found that a man named Brockman, who had been a friend of the Bender's and was part of their crowd, was grabbed and hung from a beam in the building until he was unconscious. Then when he came to, suffered it all over again. Then a third time, before being released, where it was said he staggered like a drunk man, Home. So, searching inside of the home, they found a Roman Catholic prayer book. There were notes written in German inside it, translated as saying, "Quote: Joanna Bender, born July thirtieth, eighteen forty-eight. John Gebhardt came to America on July first, eighteen, and then the year was not legible. Big Slaughter Day, January eighth, and finally, Hell departed." We still don't know if those were the names of perhaps Elvira or John Jr. or what it all meant, so interpret that as you will. Also found on the property were three hammers, a shoe hammer, a claw hammer, and a sledgehammer that matched perfectly the damage on the skulls. Consequently, these hammers were given to the Bender Museum in 1967 by the son of the township trustee who had headed the search of the homestead originally. They are now displayed at the Cherryvale Museum, where they are in a display case mounted on the wall. There was also a knife with dried blood spatter on it found. It was later donated to the Kansas Museum of History, but it is currently not on display. There is also a historical marker along the highway near Cherryvale. Nonetheless, word of the murder spread like wildfire and people began to travel to the site. When it was all said and done, more than 3,000 people had come to the homestead in hopes of experiencing the gruesome sight. They came from as far as New York City and Chicago. As curious people came to see the land, they took with them souvenirs, including bits and pieces of the home, including bricks, until the cabin was literally destroyed and this included stones from the cellar and even the well. Alexander York advertised a $1,000 reward, which would be over $22,000 today, for the location and arrest of the Bender family. Very soon after, the then Kansas governor offered an additional $2,000 or over $43,000 in today's money for the arrest of all four of them. The Chicago Tribune reported, Altogether, the murders are without parallel. End quote. And the Minneapolis Star Tribune printed that over 3,000 people had come to see and more trains arriving. A book published in Philadelphia soon after the murders titled, quote, The Five Fiends or the Bender Hotel Horror in Kansas, end quote, said, quote, Large numbers of people arrived up on the scene who had heard of the diabolical acts of bloody murder and rapacious robbery. Hardened men were moved to tears. End quote. It was believed that their method of murdering was that, when someone would be a guest in their inn, they would give them the seat of honor at the table with their back nearly against the canvas partition. Just behind them would be the trap door on the other side of the fabric. Kate would then distract the guest while one of the men would appear from behind the curtain and strike the person on the right side of their head with one of the hammers. The throat injury would be inflicted by one of the women to make sure that they would not survive, and then their body would be dropped through the trapdoor into the cellar to later be robbed of any money or valuables and the remains buried outside. It isn't thought that they made any huge amount of money off of this, and it is believed that they just killed for the thrill of it. And after the remains had been discovered, others came forward stating that they had escaped with their lives from the benders and told everyone of how they had nearly been attacked, which further backed up the theory of how they took their victims. And more than a dozen bullet holes were seen in the roof and sidewalls of the cabin, which led officials to believe some victims had tried to protect themselves. Now, People had actually found wagon tracks, and detectives followed those tracks and eventually discovered their wagon, abandoned with the horses still strapped to it and nearly starving about 12 miles north of the homestead in the town of Thayer. An investigation there discovered that the family had purchased tickets for a train headed to Humboldt, Kansas, not too far north of Thayer. But at the halfway point in Chanute, Kansas, it was stated that John Jr. and Kate exited the train and caught another train south to near Denison, Texas, which is just north of Dallas. From there, it was verified they traveled to an outlaw colony located in the area of the border of New Mexico and Texas, and no one dared go there to look for them because the people that went snooping around in that area were rarely ever seen again. It was reported that John Jr. had died from what they termed apoplexy back then. The term really isn't used much today, but it refers to bleeding within internal organs and the accompanying symptoms. So, in other words, he most likely had a stroke and died. It is believed Elvira and John Sr. stayed on the train and continued north to Kansas City, where they purchased tickets to continue on to St. Louis, Missouri. Now There have been stories told about how vigilantes had caught up to the four, shot, and killed all of them, save Kate, whom they burned alive. Still others say that the Benders had been caught and lynched before throwing their bodies into a river. And still more stories state that the Benders had died during a gunfight and their bodies had been buried somewhere out in the prairie, but the reward money was never collected. The search for Ma and Pa, John Jr. and Kate, continued for another 50 years. Sometimes two women with any discernible age difference would be stopped and accused of being Elvira and Kate, much to the women's horror. Still other reports came to be that John Senior had committed suicide in Lake Michigan or arrested in Montana for murdering someone in Idaho where they had suffered a similar head injury to the Benders victims. In all, they took one life in May of 1871, two in February 1872 then 10 over the month of December in 1872, and the remaining before May 1873. The victims, who had no one to claim their remains, were reburied at the base of a very small hill about one mile southeast of the Old Apple Orchard, and these mounds are called, quote the Bender's Mounds. They can be seen from the road. Since I live within an afternoon drive from this place, I plan on going and showing you guys as soon as I have time to get over there. The tale of this family, if indeed they were even related to each other at all, reached as far as Laura Ingalls Wilder. Who actually claimed her pa had joined a vigilante hunt and that he had told her the family would never be found, as she wrote in her autobiography, Pioneer Girl. If you've actually played the game, Red Dead Redemption, which I have, two of the main characters are actually based off of John Jr. and Kate. And though there's really nothing left of the Benders homestead now, the land, of course, still remains. In January of 2020, the Wichita Eagle newspaper reported that the 162-acre tract of cropland known as the Bender Farm would be auctioned off to the highest bidder. Some believed that there might still be undisturbed remains buried on that land. There were no amenities and it was advertised as strictly cropland. And again, I'll try to find some time soon to make the afternoon drive over there so I can get some footage and pictures for you guys, okay? So guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below if you're watching or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serial killing Instagram at gmail.com and as always, Thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you and have a great day.